Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode in our Extra Awesome series. Now, longtime listeners of Sorta Awesome may remember that in the past, we released Extra Awesome episodes into your podcast feed to explore some topics that we might not otherwise cover on our regular Friday episodes of Sorta Awesome. Well, that series had died off a little bit, but we are bringing it back so that we can talk about big moments in our culture as they are happening. Like today, we are going to be discussing the newly released podcast series, S-Town. And if you want to make sure that you know when a new episode is released, make sure you're subscribed to Sort of Awesome in your podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss any of our episodes. And you can also make sure you don't miss anything when you sign up for the show's newsletter at sortofawesomeshow.com. Just click on that newsletter tab and it will help you to get all signed up. So, a week ago today, a limited series podcast called S-Town was released into the world, and lots and lots of people are talking about it, and so my very longtime friend and host of the Smartest Person in the Room podcast and regular co-host of Sorta Awesome, Laura Tremaine, is here with me today, so we can dig in to some deep analysis of S-Town. Laura, Hello. Hello, I cannot wait to talk about this. I've listened to it almost twice through, and I haven't discussed it with anyone, so I'm like I know. bursting with the words. <laughs> exactly. So this came out a week ago. I listened to it in the first 24 hours that it came out, and then you and I went to dinner with your sister and our friend Kara that night. I had just finished listening. I had all of the words, but I made myself keep the, my words to myself because I knew that we were going to be talking about this. And so I cannot wait to dig in. So I did use a few words about S-Town. After I finished listening to it, I wrote up some thoughts on my personal Facebook page last week. And then I started having friends message me or text me and saying like, what even is S-Town? I don't know what you're talking about exactly. So let me give you a little bit of an overview first for everybody. And I will say this first part of this episode is going to be completely spoiler free. We don't want to ruin the series for anybody, but we will let you know we are going to get into the actual content completely filled with spoilers later in this episode, but we will give you plenty of warning before that happens. So like I said, it's a limited series. It's seven episodes, or they call them chapters. They were released all at once on March 28th. 
This show, S-Town, is hosted by Brian Reed. He's a producer with the longtime, very popular podcast, This American Life. It's produced by Serial Productions. So this team originally brought us, of course, the very well-known Serial Podcast. So Julie Snyder and Brian Reed produced S-Town. Um, Sarah Koenig, Ira Glass, Starley Kine, some other really big names in the podcast medium and in the industry had editorial oversight. It's just an all-star staff that has worked on this, and it really shows. It's so well done. So before they had released S-Town, there was a trailer that came out. And the fact that it, both in the trailer and the fact that this was coming from the producers of Serial... I think there was a pretty widely held expectation that S-Town was going to be another like sort of true crime, who did it, what's going on. The trailer very strongly intimates that we're going to be going to this town in Alabama where a murder has happened and an extensive cover-up has happened. And we're going to kind of see the story unfold from there. And that's just kind of not how it all plays out. Were you expecting a true crime when you uh, when you started hearing about Estown? A little bit. Now, I, I went in totally blind. I hadn't read anything about it or, or anything. And I started it several days after it had come out. But I did see that so many people were disappointed that it wasn't true crime in the same way that Serial was. Um, or Serial Season 1, I should say. Serial Season 2 wasn't traditional true crime either. I think it was pretty brilliant marketing on behalf of S-Town to, to yes. rope in those true crime lovers because there's so many of them. <laughs> hmm That's right. And they knew they yeah. could get them using the serial name, especially after a lot, a lot, a lot of people were disappointed by serial season two, which, yes. which took a turn and was kind of more journalism, politics, kind of this bigger picture thing, not traditional true crime at all. I think original serial lovers were like, oh, we're going to get back to our roots here. And then, pardon the pun, that's that's not what happened. <laughs> it's an interesting thing with serial because season one of that show is obviously true crime. With S-Town, it's very much they, you know, Julie Snyder has said in several interviews that they instead of taking like a TV episode where approach where, you know, every week you're, you, you get a cliffhanger and you can't wait till the next one comes out. They wanted this to feel more like a novel that there's kind of a smoother arc of the story overall. So, well, that's that's a nice way for her to say that. And I think that's partially true. But I also think the decision to release it all at once was because in both seasons of Serial, as well as in other podcasts that are kind of doing this real-time investigation thing, for example, Missing Richard Simmons, as the thing is released once a week, more information pours into the producers and onto the internet in between episodes. And I think that it was a huge risk to have done S-Town if they had parsed it out that way. It just wouldn't have worked in the same way. People would have figured things out. Um, you also might not have had such sympathy or possibly even affection for different characters if you only met them once a week. But as you see them in like a bigger picture thing, you are on a journey with the, these people and this town and Brian, the producer, you're kind of on a journey with him. And I feel like if you listen to the whole thing before you um, 
you know, make a judgment on it or post about it on social media or anything, if you listen to the whole thing, you're going to feel very differently by the end about multiple characters and storylines than you would have felt if this thing came out once a week. So I think that it was a deliberate way of shaping the whole of the story versus um, individual little pieces that the internet would have refuted. They would have gotten very mad at certain things. They would have spoiled it. It just wouldn't have worked in the same artistic way. Mm, That is so true. Also, on Missing Richard Simmons, it changed the ending of that podcast. So absolutely did. I mean, true. And I'm going to use this word... um, Hesitantly, because in that show is is talking about a living, breathing, real human being who was greatly affected by a show about him without his consent. However, as a piece of art, its real-timeness ruined the ending. Oh, true. So they had had this whole thing that they actually recorded and planned or whatever where they – you can't exactly tell what they do. It sounds like they maybe dropped a boombox over his fence and – I don't know what they did that they ended up scrapping and changed the very ending of that podcast. And I was dying to know what they did. Now, again, I do have sympathy for Richard Simmons himself and all the hoopla that came around this thing. So I I say that, and I think that they made the best ethical decision with how they changed it. However, as a piece of art, I mean, it kind of ruined it. I absolutely agree. That is such a great point. And I I agree wholeheartedly about the Missing Richard Simmons podcast. And I agree, especially applying that same logic to S-Town. Yeah, absolutely. We get to experience it as the creators intended all along. And that's so important, I think, particularly in the age of the internet. So let me ask you this. I have thoughts on this, but I'd love to hear what you think. How would you classify this? Like if you were just trying to explain to somebody sort of like what kind of genre or like what kind of signifiers or description you would put on it, how would you even classify S-Town? I would call this a documentary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like an audio documentary. It's real life, but it does have a story and a narration. It also has a conclusion sort of. I know there's a lot of answers I mean, a lot of questions by the end, but there is a conclusion in in terms of this happened at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, and it, it felt documentary to me. I wouldn't have. A lot of people are calling it audiobook mm. um, or novelly, and I'm like, well, except that it's real. So right, exactly. Yes, I, I totally agree with the documentary part. I'm confident, and you and I talked about this on our episode about ten documentaries to watch. I'm confident that there were some choices that were made in production that were more artistic and less journalistic. Even though Brian Reed is a journalist and and has worked for you know works for currently a very reputable journalism outlet. You have to know that with these hours and hours and hours of audio collected over years, that choices were made along the way that fit the storyline artistically. Um, So I I totally agree the idea of it being an audio documentary. It does feel like an audiobook, except, uh, and I don't listen to a ton of audiobooks, but most of the time, and and someone out there can correct me if I'm wrong, you don't get like a, a sense of the musical direction that's going on. Usually when you're listening to an audiobook, it's usually just the narration. Um, and, and, and I don't know if I just pick up on these things again, because I think about podcast production a lot, but the musical choices and the musical direction as it plays out behind the story is 
phenomenal. And it's so beautiful and seamless as it's incorporated that it's easy to miss it. But it adds so much to the experience of the story. So I've, I I definitely agree. It's audio documentary. I've been telling people, I feel like it's a real life Southern Gothic. So Southern Gothic is a big genre of literature. Think like Flannery O'Connor and Cormac McCarthy, Tennessee Williams, except like you just said, those are all fiction. They have, you know, certain elements that, um, that are very, you very much see that show up in, um, in S town. But again, those are all the created works of, you know, really intelligent, minds this happened in real life so also i think following the documentary footprint if you will often often documentary filmmakers set out to make one type of thing and it turns into something else oh true yes which is i think what happened here very obviously um some people in our sort of awesome hangout group on facebook we're talking a lot about how in the world did this thing get made? They were wondering why Brian Reed, as a producer who, you know, ostensibly gets hundreds, if not thousands of emails from people saying, you should cover this, you should do that. Like why he ended up following this one. And I actually did not have that question in my mind until I read like multiple people really musing on like, how did this this thing even get made. And I think that he gives us a hint to it early on when he says that before he ever went down to Alabama, he had spoken with or communicated with um, our our main, I don't know if you want to call him a character, our main subject, John B. McLemore. He had spoken with him for almost a year. Yes. Yes. Emails and phone calls. Yes. And I think that as a seasoned producer that Brian was like, there is something here. I I don't know if what it is, but this person, John B. McLemore, was is obviously so original mm-hmm. that I'm going to get something if I go down to Alabama. Right? Yes. It, it, sometimes you do wonder, like, how do they find these people? And to think that some that, like to think about all the emails that a production team would get, like, you should check this out. This could be a story. Have you heard about this? Uh, it's pretty amazing to think that this one person caught the a- attention and later affection of Brian Reed to the point where he followed through on the story. But also he says, I thought this was interesting, that the thing that kind of maybe finally got him down to Alabama from New York was John B. McLemore's email um, to a, a link to a news story sort of proving that one of the stories, and, and he had sent Brian multiple stories over the year, I guess, but that one of them was actually true and this police officer had been found guilty and this was a thing that actually happened. So maybe that is the kind of the final thing that pushed Brian over the edge to be like, well, maybe this other murder mm-hmm, mm-hmm. happened as well. Plus this guy's obviously so colorful and whatever. But what I thought was interesting is he he had to have gone down there knowing this was a character study with maybe a murder element. He... He, as he's describing his actions, they are not journalistic. Mm-hmm. So, like, he's very scared to talk to the guy who's being accused of murder. He is very scared to call the potential victim's family. Um, whereas, like, a journalist who is actually investigating an actual murder mm-hmm. would be would be making those phone calls. So, to me, when Brian's like, I was too nervous to, like, go talk to this guy who might be a murderer. I was like, right. oh, what are we doing? <laughs> 
Like obviously, <laughs> you're just covering choice. you're just covering the people at this right. point. You're not right. really looking into like true justice. So interesting. Well, we're going to move into the spoiler part in just a moment, but but before we turn loose our listeners who have not yet listened to S Town, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about kind of try to try to answer the question, should you listen or should you not listen to S-Town if you have not yet listened to it? You know, one of the first reactions I started seeing, especially in our Hangout group, but in, in other threads on social media was people had listened to the first episode and they were like, oh, I can't deal with this because of the political element. And that gave me pause because I genuinely was like, does this talk about politics in the first episode? <laughs> what I later realized is, one thing that you should know about John B. is he is obsessed with the topic of climate change and the coming energy crisis and those types of things. And I didn't think about it, but he does talk about that extensively in the first episode. And so I... And he makes disparaging comments about Christians and sort of oh, his, yes. op- in his opening... Yes. Monologue. I mean, yes. very early on, he says some pretty negative faith-based things, I would say. He does. Now, listen, if you're really sensitive to strong language, you're going to know from like the first five to 10 minutes if you can tolerate this one. In fact, S-Town, the S in S-Town is an, an abbreviation for a very common profane word in our English language. So, just know that there is a lot of strong language throughout this. So some people have different tolerances for that. So bear that in mind. I will say, and I've talked about this many times on the show, I am like off the charts, highly sensitive on the highly sensitive person scale. I listened all the way through. I, I made it through halfway through again on a, on a re-listen. And I think it's one of the most beautiful, profound pieces of art I've experienced in a very, very long time. I absolutely love it. So, And I don't think it's dark in the way that people who are sensitive to dark things, most of the time, when they say that, what they mean by that, I don't think it's dark in that way. It is dark in a sad humanity yes. kind of way, but it is not um, scary or right, uh, right. gory or... Um, it did not make me feel like, you know, in in total despair over the world, even though some characters do. It didn't make me feel that way. Like, I, I don't know, when people who are really jumpy about dark things, I guess if you're really, really jumpy about dark things, then maybe not. But for people who, for, for most people, I, I don't think this hits the dark level of can't yeah. do it. Definitely, definitely. So, okay, this is your big warning. If you have not listened and you're planning to, and you would like to remain unspoiled as long as possible on S-Town, just know now is the time. Push pause on this episode, come back to it another day after you have listened to it, because we are getting ready right now. Now's the time. Go, go, go. Because we're going to get into the content of S-Town. So, Laura, let's just talk about the story kind of as it unfolds. So you listened, you kind of binge listened to it once you started listening. Is that right? I did. It came out on Tuesday. I just was traveling and wasn't able to really listen to it until Friday, I think. And I binged it on Friday and Saturday. And then I listened to most of it a second time on Sunday. So yeah, I, I listened to it. And you know, 
a lot of, I'm not usually a person who will re-listen or re-read or re-watch. That's not really my thing. I knew we were going to do this show. And also I was just curious to re-listen. I think if you have it in you to re-listen, it is quite different the second time. Yes, it is. It really is. I was shocked. Even in episode one, I was like, oh my gosh. Because the people take such pivots throughout. Yes. yes. Um, the second time, knowing how, how it's going to be towards the end, then you you hear them when they first arrive on the show, you feel differently about them and you maybe hear their words differently. Now, yes. I took the whole journey with Brian. I led him where he wanted me to go. Yes. Yes, like, exactly. I, I uh, and I'm kind of a skeptic by nature in general, which we'll get to because I remain skeptical of a lot of things in this. But upon my first listening, I followed him everywhere. I was suspicious of the people I was supposed to be suspicious of, namely the cousins. Mm. I was very sympathetic to Tyler. Mm. I fell in love with John B. McLemore. Like, mm. I, I did it. I went, I just did it with Brian. I did all yep. the emotions. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I experienced it the same way. Starting from the beginning, when you, you know, in those opening phone calls, like, John B. is a character. And I I think people, I'm interested to hear from people from different parts of the country. I wrote on my personal Facebook page that I found parts of the story to be deeply disturbing. And and we can talk more about that in a minute. And and a few people who are more, who either live in the South or have family in the South, I think they assumed, and I did not make that, I did not explicitly say there are parts of Southern culture I found to be disturbing. People kind of assigned my words to that, and they were like, I, I wasn't disturbed by it because I know that these are the realities of life in the South. And But it was so interesting to he- hear it through, because I'm like you, I like got into Brian Reed's head and tried to imagine experiencing all of this from those opening phone calls. I thought there was such wonderful, serious shades of... Um, well, I was going to say the character, but the real life person, Jim Williams, who is at the center of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and not a book by John Barrent that later became a film. That Jim Williams character, I felt like was like reincarnated in John B. McLemore. Mm. I was a little nervous at first. You know, I grew up in a super tiny small town, even smaller than I, our hometown. I grew up in um, a town of about 3,500 people, very rural, very, very um, uh, what certain Oklahoma caricatures would be like. It was from this little town I grew up in. Our, I spend the summer in a little town in the deep south where, you know, also there's plenty of stereotypes present. But I live my life in Los Angeles. I feel protective of both stereotypes, the big Mm. city and the small town. So when it first started, at first I thought, oh no, like I got like, is this going to be making fun, exploitative, making fun of the South? Um, Is this going to be some kind of bigger picture commentary on the election? Right. Um, Which I'm kind of over that talk right now. Sure, sure. And so at first I was like, oh shoot. Like, is this going to be big New York City person coming down and looking at small town Southern people like they're zoo animals? Mm -hmm. That was going to bother me. Mm -hmm. However, the contrast of John B. McLemore, now he says some outrageously offensive things throughout, but the contrast of his um, politics and religion and whatever being so liberal, and yet he's speaking with the thickest accents in our country almost, the contrast of those, I started to think, okay, maybe this isn't going to be 
well, it is offensive, but but maybe the angle of the podcast wasn't right. going to be offensive. Right. For some right. reason, it worked for me in the beginning. I don't know why. So how did you feel when Brian goes to the tattoo parlor and then they kind of open it up into their club in the back and we just hear some like really explicit talk uh, on race? Um, the N-word is used casually and part of conversation. Was that jarring to you or were you like, um, I actually like, I can imagine this conversation happening. I've, you know, I've been adjacent to these types of things. Yes, both. Um, I wasn't surprised by that kind of talk, but it's hard to listen to no matter what. It's very cringy. I'm, you know, very opposed to um, those words being used and that kind of thing, even that thought process. However, because I do know people like that and have lived parts of my life where people speak like that, I also know that people are complicated Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and people's realities are complicated and their worldview um, is very specific. And so, so, I mean, I don't know how to answer your question. No, I wasn't surprised by it, but yes, I hated listening to it. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said there that, um, and I, and I feel like, the producers made some pretty intentional choices, both with Brian's narration. Again, I feel like Brian is such a solid, steady guide in it. Um, as you know, because he's narrating, but then also there's audio playing at the same time. I don't know. Somehow the blend of that together almost made it easier to digest or to experience. I don't even know if I'm making sense now, but. Well, let's assume that he had a lot of very offensive stuff that he. Mm-hmm. Right. He he chose what he left in the show. Right. Um, and doesn't it give you a bit of pause that people felt entirely comfortable saying those things with a microphone in their face? That definitely, yes. That to me was the most jarring thing. Because, you know, I live in Los Angeles, so there's a lot of political correctness here, of course, but just for what I would assume would be the general public, even if you held certain views privately, you would not have said them on recording. So the fact that um, it was just so overt is just devastating. It's just, it's just, was devastating to me that they not only felt this way and acted this way, some of, some of the ways they were saying the reason they even had the secret door behind the tattoo parlor, uh, then they would also be like, and this can go on national radio. Right. Right. I know. I It's that it's was upsetting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It is. So we make it through the first chapter, which is, re- it really gives us the lay of the land. There are, if you go back and do a re-listen when you have finished there are some incredibly like almost chill bump producing lines, especially that that John B says um, some things that he says when they kind of get stuck in the maze. Um, he says, it's kind of funny to be lost in something you des- designed yourself, isn't it? And just like to think about him and the like meta picture of his life. There's just lots of little moments like that, especially in the first chapter. Oh, 
Oh, so, so powerful. So, so we make it through that. And then by the beginning and to, through to the middle of the second chapter, you start to realize like, oh, this is definitely not going where I thought it was going to go. But you can see you're only in the middle of the second chapter and you've got all of these chapters afterwards. I spent a lot of time in chapter two, like, where are they going with this? Was that your experience of the second chapter? No, I don't. I'm just telling you, I just followed Brian right along. Like, I just was like, I was so in in it and how interesting these people were. I did not care about that murder. I never got fully invested. Sure. Which, you know, Mm -hmm. good thing, because we find out fairly quickly there was no murder. (laughs) No murder. None. No. Like, like literally zero murder. Um, And, but I do, speaking of the murder, because... It's a, it's almost like such a small part of the whole thing, but right? when he yes. when he goes to the lumber yard to interview the the murderer who's not really a murderer, yes, yeah. I I kind of skimmed over that part in the first listening. I don't know why. By then, we already know that there hasn't been a murder. We know that Brian's just coming to inter- to talk to the guy about why he would be saying he murdered someone when he didn't really. And mm-hmm. I that part was only medium interesting to me the first go around. The second go around when I listened to that, I was like, well, that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. When the the guy was just like letting that rumor roll, um, he doesn't really deny that he's saying that right. he's like, at, you know, going around town saying that he murdered people. Like I just, the second, if anyone listens, there's certain little parts that maybe you didn't think were important the first time. And the second time, I don't necessarily think it's important as it was interesting of like, wow, like people are just something. Well, and you know, Brian kind of contextualized that conversation with explaining the whole effort attitude of parts, strains of that culture, like everything's going to be terrible anyway. And I do not think this is limited to deep South culture. I think it probably relates more to um, the poverty cycle. um, And that can be experienced anywhere. But this idea that I'm nothing's going to turn out right anyway, everything's going to end up getting screwed up. So F it. I'll just do whatever. Well, which goes back to what we were saying about people being just racist and um, like openly being, you know, very derogatory towards other people. Yeah. And so when they're like, I'm just going to be who I am, this is how I feel about other races, or this is how, yeah, sure. I said that, like, who cares? Maybe I said I murdered the guy. Well, I just did. I don't know. Like, (laughs) yeah, I know. I know. It is very interesting, especially on a re-listen. Okay, so the title of chapter two is, or the, not title, but like the, you know, for each chapter, they kind of just pull out one quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and for chapter two, it's, has anybody called you? That really stood out to me. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, experienced this, Laura, but I have gotten the news of a, the death of a dear friend And the first line from the person delivering the news was, has anybody called you? And this was years ago, five or six years ago, maybe more now, that I can still remember the details of that conversation. And so we get, so, so, okay, at the end of chapter two, we get this phone call from Skylar calling Brian. She starts with, has anybody called you? The fact that Brian has the wherewithal to make sure he's recording is pretty amazing, again, from a production standpoint. But so he's recording and she delivers the news of John's suicide. And this part was, uh, and I can't remember, I I guess it's on into chapter three when they really dig into that whole recorded phone call. And Brian did that thing that I think is so universal, that 
that universal response that's like, that cannot be right. I just talked to him. In fact, again, that same phone call I got when a dear friend of our family was killed in a car accident, I literally had just seen the man the night before, like 12 hours before. And I I was so shocked and so stunned. The only thing I could kept saying, uh, the only thing I just kept saying over and over was, I just saw him last night. And Brian kind of reflects on that, how the brain is like trying to process, like he was just here. It cannot possibly be true that he's gone. Mm. So that phone call is really something. It really is. And I felt like Skylar handled it um, in a in a much more graceful way, maybe than I would have given her credit for. Yes, I agree. Um, I feel like when she says at the end, you know, if, well, if you weren't a part of this, I wouldn't have called you. Yes, yes. Um, I just got chills because I, these people are layered and they're not stereotypes and they're mm-hmm. um, not all awful or all wonderful. Like they are just as complicated as the next person. And I think that because stereotypes are usually flat, right, um, to, to, to really be there and have this play out in a real way to realize um, that so many of these people were thoughtful in the next breath after they had, had said something very offensive mm-hmm. or very, very sharp in the next breath after they had said something really ignorant. Mm-hmm. Yes. It just catches your heart. And that conversation, I, you know, she's kind of dealing with her kid at the same time that she's having yes. this conversation. She goes through the screen door. You hear it. She's like, I'm going to go outside for a second. Just I, that conversation, it's not even that long, really, um, in, in terms of how he presents it to us anyway, is like really something I'll remember a long time. And just how he catches himself. He's kind of crying, you can kind of yes, tell. Yes, obviously, yeah. And she doesn't say anything, um, or at least we hear, you know, awkward about this New right. York reporter weeping on the phone. And Right. I, just there's lots to it. There's just lots to it. Were you surprised? Did you know that was the twist, that he no. was going to commit suicide? Okay, I, I did didn't either. not. I didn't I either. Was- I was completely surprised. I knew, you know, obviously, again, they don't make any bones about it from the beginning that someone's going to die. But you have all these characters introduced in the first chapter. It could have been Mary Grace. It could have been Tyler. It could have been the, I can't even remember the kid's name that was the supposed murderer. I mean, like it could have, there's so many threads of possibility of who could have died. I did not expect it to be John B. Even though, and again, when you go back and listen, he talks about suicide to Brian a lot from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But in the, the first time you're listening, it's almost easy to experience it that in that sort of like melodramatic Southern way. And he he talks a lot about, I was too depressed. I get, got one of those depressive moods and whatever. Um, can was, we talk about his suicide? Let's talk about. Okay. Because then in, in, then in um, episode three, of course, there's right. more details about how he did it and when he did it. And, um, yes. you know, he'd had the, it was the day after Father's Day where he'd kind of had the fight with Tyler. Also, drinking cyanide is no joke. It's 
I, it's horrifying to imagine what he would have gone through. And, you, you know, as the story unfolds, we, we find out that he was very drunk by the end of the day. But this was a brilliant man who had been working with cyanide in various ways in his work for years. So he would have known exactly the effect of, you know, how, like, that it would have not been a peaceful passing. Yeah, just the circumstances are just kind of heartbreaking that he and Tyler had a had a falling out, but then they kind of made up and they went out and had this day together. And he was upset and really, 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 really wanting Tyler to come back. And um, Tyler just kind of like had to have like a boundary in his life because, again, later chapters would reveal that this was not the first time that John had said he was going to kill himself. And Tyler's girlfriend is like, you cannot go over there every time. He says he's going to kill himself, and so he decides not to. And in the meantime, John calls this town clerk, Faye, who he had an interesting friendship with, and is on the phone with her when he drinks the cyanide. And she experiences it in real time on the other end of the phone. Just like you cannot even – that is that is straight out of the pages of fiction, except it really and truly happened. There were some a few questions for me. Now again, I'm a I'm a true crime person, so this part did interest me. They never explain how his body was found, because oh. remember she says yes. um, that she was not allowed to call the police. Although mm-hmm. his threat there is that he's going to shoot them, whereas obviously she can maybe deduce that that wouldn't necessarily happen. Were she to call the police afterwards, right. but they keep saying his body wasn't found until the next morning, which mm. means she did not immediately call the police. I don't believe. Mm, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Or they just don't explain it. I thought, well, dad gum, did Mary find him the next morning on the porch? You know, Tyler hears about it early enough in the morning that he drives over there, but there's already police tape and stuff. So possibly she did call the police after they got off the phone late at night, whatever time at night that was. Let's say it was, I don't yeah. know. I think she says before midnight or whatever. So possibly she did call the police, but I noticed as a, as a person who you know, listens to these stories, that it is not spelled out what happened Mm, in between that phone call. And um, the next thing we hear is that Tyler hears about it and goes over there. But but we don't know what happened, which I, you know, you can leave that out for lots of reasons. I did notice it. And I felt bad. This is a person that we never even hear from, but I, I had to feel bad for Tyler's girlfriend because... Her saying you can't run over there every time he threatens to commit suicide is kind of a valid mm-hmm. partner yeah. thing to express, right? Especially if this was happening a lot. But on the other hand, for them this to right. happen, I, you know, I've never lived around someone or never been in close relationship with someone who was threatening suicide all the time. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine like how like guilt you must feel and how entangled you must feel all times until it happens or doesn't happen or, you know, whatever. And how awful mm-hmm. it would be. But to me, again, I'm speaking this with absolutely no knowledge. But to me, mm-hmm. a person who threatens it all the time for years, who threatens it, who has a suicide note on their computer, you know, who who is truly on the verge of truly taking their life all the time. Well, of course, it becomes a cry wolf situation. You don't think they're going to right. actually do it. And on the night that he's decided to actually do it, it's not 
that big a deal. Like nothing has really happened to act. You know what I mean? It comes out of the blue. It's right. It's terrible. I don't even know where I was going with that other than I just kept thinking like how guilty they must feel. I know. Uh, yes. When Tyler tells the story of, you know, the day sort of like the, the days, but leading up to it. I mean, I was just crushed, just absolutely so crushed for Tyler. I hadn't even thought about for his girlfriend, but yes, definitely. Just what did you think about Tyler and John's relationship in general? It is so interesting. Again, you know, in the first episode, Tyler's just introduced casually because it's his brother, Jake, I think, who supposedly was like the, the, who overheard yeah, yeah. At, in front of Little Caesars about the murder. Out there in front of the Little Caesars. <laughs> yeah. So Tyler's really just introduced casually, like, oh, well, here's his brother, actually. So again, when you're you're sort of thinking this is going to be like a true crime that we're going to unravel, you're like, oh, but there's his brother. So maybe now we'll get to talk to Jake or whatever, not knowing that, like, Tyler's actually one of the central figures of this whole story. So, oh, I thought they had such just like a really fascinating dynamic. I could understand the sort of like stand-in father that Tyler might've been looking for. I, you know, there's like this little almost throwaway line from the first chapter when Brian says that Tyler would later confide in him that, you know, he he would wake up in some mornings drenched in sweat, dreaming that he killed his father. Like to think about what a tormented relationship Tyler had with his real father. Um, and then here comes John B., who, like, kind of steps in as a, as a father figure to the point of sacrificing his skin, as they put it in the um, in the series, to get all these tattoos, which he hated and loathed and had said they were a sign of despair and hopelessness. And But to save Tyler and his partner's tattoo shop that he would show up with, you know, here's $400, I'm going to get another tattoo. And then later... The very complicated dynamic of the tattooing and the pain and all of that that is finally revealed. Is it in chapter seven when that all of that comes out? I feel like it's mm-hmm. but do you do you really feel like that was wholly altruistic? No, because I bought into it at the beginning. Yeah. I bought into it of like, wow, what a secretly good person right. John B. Mclemore was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, on multiple fronts, but especially the example of paying them to give him tattoos just to save the tattoo parlor when he hated tattoos. I really bought into, you know, oh, this is a portrait of a secretly good person. Right. You know? Right, right. Yes. But but by the end. Yes. By, by the time you get to chapter six and on into chapter seven, it's clearly not the adoptive father narrative that it could have been if we hadn't known all of the the other things and like that that John B had had a, a similar sort of mentorship relationship with another guy who had ended up going off and you know finding a girlfriend and how devastating that would have been to John and then how obsessive and possessive of Tyler he could be um if particularly when women were involved in the the sexual dynamics that were at play with the tattooing and the nipple piercing and all of that. There's a lot of sexual dynamics that go unspoken here. Um, Even when Brian, the producer narrator tiptoes towards it, I feel like he leaves a lot of things unsaid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
in that realm and what those relationships might have looked like. The he if he full on asks Tyler, we don't get to hear that in audio. He does ask the kid who John B. McElmore had had a mentor relationship with decades ago who has since moved to New York. And that was kind of a weird thing because he was describing what an expensive apartment they live mm-hmm. in, in the Upper West Side or whatever, and that he is, what did they say, a waiter, a bartender, Something and his sense. wife's a Montessori teacher. And I was like, mm-hmm. hmm, yeah. that, that doesn't seem to compute, but, the, but it doesn't really go fully there. And he does explicitly ask that guy, did you have a sexual relationship with John B. McElmore? And he says no, but maybe it was just me reading too much into it. But I just felt the weight of these sexual questions um, as a thread throughout many episodes of um, not just repressed sexuality, of which that's very obvious, but also just... (sighs) confusion and some fluidity and mm-hmm. some owing people something, you know, and oh, that stuff was, again, not not explicitly set out. I just, it, that was, you could read between the lines a hundred different ways. None of it would be, would be surprising to me. If it were to come out that Tyler and John B. McElmore had had a sexual relationship the whole time, that wouldn't be surprising to me. If for some reason we were able to get a truth serum and, and reveal that they had never, ever had one single ounce of sexual contact, I, that wouldn't have surprised me either. You know what I mean? These stories can go a lot of different ways, but the, the heaviness of it, the weight of it was in all of these relationships. It felt like to me. Oh, I absolutely agree. Absolutely. It was almost like, um, just like a steady vibration under all of those conversations. And again, it's not explicitly made known to us, so we can only conjecture, but that, I don't know, it's almost an intangible thing in the questions that are asked, the responses, the tone of voice, just, and again, just being a human being and kind of either, you know, just thinking through like the reality as opposed to what is explicitly said. I don't know. There's, that's definitely a thing. That's a thing. And when you get to the end and you find out that he's been getting the tattoos over tattoos over tattoos, and you realize that maybe he wasn't only saving the tattoo shop. Uh, Maybe he was getting some kind of pleasure in, receiving the tattoos um and also we see by the end there and when it has been explained to us that john practically helped found the city yeah of woodstock and like had annexed in the land for it and had all these high hopes for it and whatever that he destroys these things that he originally loves oh definitely there's so much so much tendencies towards self-destructive behaviors in self-destructive like if he's like if he thinks that tattoo getting tattoos is the symbol of hopelessness or i can't remember exactly what he calls it something like Mm -hmm. that that when you have tattoos it's a symbol of hopelessness and then towards the end of his life he starts to get tattoos um or he originally has all this hope for the town Mm -hmm. you know years and years ago and all this and then it's not living up to whatever his own expectation is. So then he completely turns on the town. Like, and then the, again, the young mentee that had moved to New York, eventually, like, he had loved that guy and then he did it. Like, I, you know, 
he dies before his relationship is over with Tyler. So we don't really see where that is ultimately leading. But he, but there is, there's so much destruction mm-hmm. in his path of things that he starts out loving. You know, uh, that just reminds me of a note that I made as I was kind of thinking back in, I think it's in chapter four, maybe when they're interviewing John's friends, which that's a whole interesting section, but one of his friends, <clears throat> one of his clockwork friends, what, what are they mm-hmm, called? Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the technical name was. He says that John made an insurmountable challenge out of living. And I thought, oh, that that sums it up right there. All of the self-destructive tendencies, the, yeah, the choices, the, yeah, the negativity. I want to talk about that. We need to back up, though, because right. those friends came from a list yes. that he had left. So let's back up to after he dies. So we have the funeral. And... We have the cousins come on the scene, mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. in the very beginning, when they first come on the scene, of course, we've been viewing this story through Brian's eyes, but we feel, I think most of us feel great affection for Tyler. And here come these cousins up from Florida that want to come in and they get Mary Grace. They don't even go see Mary Grace first. They go straight to the house and then there's the confrontation with Tyler. And, you know, the way we see it as it starts to unfold is that they are the interlopers. They're intruding on this scene of togetherness and um so that's and they're trying to steal because to me the inference was them going straight to the house instead of going straight to the hospital was to get their hands on whatever those gold bars or whatever gold um valuables whatever or at least stake it out and kind of see what they had on their hands that's how they're presented and i i i bought that at first i did too i did too now again again i think this was a great production choice later we get to hear from Rita, I think her name was, the, the female mm-hmm. cousin. The cousin. Herself. Mm-hmm. And you get it, like, just when you're hearing her talk about it and you think about things from her perspective and how family and loyalty works in many cultures, you start to get a sense of, like, well, I mean, I guess I can see why they came up here right away and... I, it's well, especially when she describes that they they come to Woodstock to visit other family right, or whatever, right. and she had seen that maybe their house and their way of life wasn't fantastic. So that maybe when she heard that John's gone, she's like, "Well, I have to get up there." Right. I mean, the woman is senile, and she lives in this really not well kept house and whatever. And in the same way that Tyler had never heard of Rita, Rita had never heard of Tyler. So why would you trust this 23-year-old who's saying they have keys to the house? I mean, I would be just as suspicious as she was. Now, it's at this point, their confrontation is a he said, she said, Mm -hmm. of who was kind of being uglier about it. But when you hear her point of view, which is episodes later, like three episodes later, when you hear her point of view, you start to feel like, oh... Right. I mean, nobody is a reliable narrator here. Nobody. Exactly. Exactly. I had that in my notes, too, that there is literally, we all we have to go on is Brian in, in Julie Snyder's production choices, because all of these characters are unreliable in their own way. And what did it make you think, this was a huge reveal to me, actually, this little nugget, this few seconds of audio is kind of what pulled the curtain finally down for me, was when Rita explains that Mary is now doing better 
Right, right. That she is traveling and, you know, lives with family, friends, and whatever she's doing. And then, finally, then, Brian gives a true reflection to something that he had it tried really hard not to judge. But when he was honest with himself, he realized maybe she wasn't getting exactly. adequate nutrition or mental stimulation or, you know, grooming or whatever from by living with John. And nobody wants to think that about who has become a friend or whatever, but you realize like, oh. Yes. That was a huge moment. And when you think about it, like John was like 48 or 49 when he died. And you'd have to imagine that, you know, his mother was not probably too far even into her 70s. And so she, you know, still had the capacity to be experiencing life and, and, John had painted this picture of her being terribly, terribly ill with Alzheimer's. And, but then when you, that moment where Brian really like takes a, an objective look at how they were living in this little house, completely isolated from other people. No TV. No, no TV. I mean, yeah, she would have had, I assume you can tell that obviously John is on the computer quite a bit, but she would have had almost no mental stimulation. Exactly. Exactly. When, when you're told from the original town clerk, not Faye, but um, the one that John had had the falling out with. Later, she talks about how Mary used to be the town character right. before John was. Right. And that she used to kind of dress very yes. flamboyantly and go around town looking for gossip and, and you know, being very colorful and unique herself. And, um, of course, now disease might have taken a lot of that, but, but he wasn't helping mm. her maintain any of that. It's so true. It's so true. Well, so again, we have the funeral. We have the cousins come on the scene. And then and then this was interesting. And I, I got a little disoriented in, in chapter four, I think it is, when they do start examining this list of friends that he wanted notified and that Faye had, there seemed to be like a question mark about why she didn't call these people to, after the funeral. I really thought there for just a little bit, for a few beats, I thought, oh, maybe there is still a mystery to unfold here. Maybe there is like a conspiracy or... I kept waiting in the middle. I kept waiting this whole time. I thought they're really those tunnels that Tyler had to dig under the house and build gates for. That's where all the gold is or it's in the maze. I mean, I felt like there had been all of these like really like bolded, highlighted, you know, things that we were supposed to take note of early in the series. And I was like, oh, now it's going to actually come to fruition. And it actually never does. <laughs> Except I'll tell you what, I'm suspicious of Faye. Now, this is a real breathing person as well, so, but I'm just going to talk about it because it was on the podcast. But because, like I already said, there's absolutely no explanation to when she did call the cops or whatever. Right. If she was on the phone with John, mm -hmm. and she also says that he told her where certain things Mm -hmm. were and and whatever. Now, we'll, we will get to eventually whether we actually think there is buried treasure somewhere. But if there's any truth to that part, who would have stopped her from not going out there and getting it herself? He's just told her it's in the freezer or whatever he's yeah. said or not said. Um, and we don't know when the cops were called. That's never revealed in the podcast. And then she didn't call any of his friends. Right. People that potentially he might have might also know some of that information. I feel like... There was one person, if there is, a, if there is even a whodunit buried into this story, that it is Faye. 
Well, and two, like one, one person specifically said, I did not get a call until after the funeral. And he like looks through his phone and she, you know, later Brian goes back to follow up and she insists that she made those phone calls in the first few days before the funeral. Well, we live in a day and an age where all like phone calls, everybody uses their cell phones and those, you can look and see if somebody called or didn't call. Plus so, it wasn't just one person who said right? they didn't get the no, call. Like none half of the them. list didn't get the call. Like none of them did before the funeral, I don't think. And then, you know, there's like. Well, the cousin, the cousins did the and cousins. the cousins were on the list. Mm, um, That's true. So now, now, now Rita does say they have other family in Woodstock. So it's possibly, it's possible that they got called from someone else, mm-hmm. but in, pro- in fact, probably likely, mm-hmm. giving, given yeah. Faye's track record. Right. But I just thought there was not, especially towards the end when we get into sort of this, all this introspection of who John was or wasn't. Yeah. We just dropped the Faye storyline, the town clerk storyline, and I feel like if there's anything to be mm. looked at, it, it, she says she knows. Mm. She says that he tells her where things are, quote unquote. I didn't even think about that. I thought it was fishy. I have thought there was just like such a huge question mark, but you are so right that there is that gap of time. And I hadn't even made the connection that, yes, of course, a lot of those dear friends of his who had had many of those men said that they'd talked for hours and hours about all kinds of stuff. And as much as John talked about everything, I think it's very likely that if there is treasure somewhere, he would have... He so, might have told them, yeah. which because, you know, he, he had given the the suicide note that had been on his computer that he had given to multiple people. He emailed it to Brian. He had emailed it to Faye, the town clerk. He had it living on his computer. Um, so multiple people had that list of those to call. Yeah. Now, maybe that wasn't all on Faye to do so. Other people had copies of this note, if you know what I mean. Maybe she's in collusion with Tyler, and they were like, we're going to make sure we get what we think is there, and then then we can call the other people who also might know where something is. That's true. That is true. Mm. All right. There's a lot going on there, but let's – we got to get to Chapter 6, Laura, because this is – that's a doozy. That is, as I was listening the first time, I was, as I usually listen to podcasts, I was going about doing my business, picking up kids, taking care of housework, whatever. Chapter six, I, I happened to start at the end of Tuesday night as the, the day that this had dropped. I had to go upstairs and lay down on my bed and just have like no, nothing going on around me because that chapter is so intimate and so, oh, Almost, I I feel like it it really walks that line into being really invasive. Like I felt, I felt like an intruder into John B.'s life listening to chapter six. I, I mean, I think it's like, it's definitely an important part of the story, but man, it's, I don't know. I have a major ethical problem with chapter six. Okay, let's hear it. It is, it is my only real problem. And I know a lot of people have problems with documentaries being exploitive or true crime as entertainment. And and people get all kinds of high horse about that topic. And I don't. Because I think most of these people gave permission Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for this. The part where his, um, where Olin comes forward, having found out months later of John's death Mm -hmm. and explains to Brian that they met on a 
sex chat line, but they never actually had a relationship. And then there's like 30 minutes devoted to it. Mm -hmm. Now, the first time I listened to it, I was, you know, like you described, like I was just wrapped with the tension, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. But then when I thought about it, I was like, I'm so uncomfortable with this, not because it gets graphic sexually, although it does mm-hmm. a little bit mm-hmm. at the end of that section, um, and not because I do not think that John's repressed sexuality is worth exploring. I do. I think that that is a real issue um, in that part of the country or, you know, just in general. And I thought it it does explain some of his despair probably and you know it's very heartbreaking i hate to hear that about anyone else and fully believe that's a reality for people and so so when brian the producer talks to um with permission of an actual former lover of his and then gets kind of corroboration of some other people that john might have had a sexual relationship with to me that's where the line should have stopped because i do think it's worth getting into John's sexuality a little bit, but Olin himself, I'll be honest, I I was suspicious of him. He isn't on, nobody can attest to his relationship with John. He is not on that list of people to contact. That's true. Um, No one seems to have known him or heard of him. He says that he has, you know, would come out to the farm and... And that they would talk on the phone for hours. Um, But John had a lot of people, a lot, dozens and dozens of people that he talked to on the phone for hours. And so to me, to give such a huge chunk of time to this person, Mm -hmm. when I do not think that when John opened the can of worms of come do a documentary on our town or even on me or even on all of the things that that John did sort of open the door to for Brian, I do not think he gave permission to open that door to Olin. I really don't. Mm. If he's if he is not, he's never mentioned it. Again, he's not on that list. You know, one could argue ethically that the people that are on his suicide note list are a little bit of a fair game in in terms of approaching them and. Whatever, because they clearly had a relationship strong enough with John that he's on that final list. Yeah, I can see that. This guy was not. Right. Which to me says that John wasn't opening that particular door. Yeah. And it's so intimate, like you said. Hmm. It is. It is. And that that chapter was... It was disturbing to me, not because of the content or, you know, the the frank discussions of sexuality. Just, I just felt like we should not be going here. I felt. I agree. I just, I felt very unnerved by that. He he also wasn't even in love with John. Maybe I would have given it a pass if it was someone who had deeply been in love with John or in relationship with John or had maybe even actually been in a sexual relationship with John if that had been illuminating to what we were doing here. This guy was actually none of those things. I mean, clearly they were, well, I don't even want to say clearly, but evidence seems to show that they they were good friends. He seemed to know a lot of detail about John's life. So they must have been friends or spoken quite a bit. But he wasn't even coming from place to me, it didn't even feel like a place of deep love or I don't know. I just was like, mm, this this is where we have crossed the line into mm-hmm. maybe not okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, those are some great insights about the the Olin interview, particularly that I had not caught or even really given second thought to. So that's that's good stuff. Okay, so then we get to chapter seven. We have a major revelation from Brian about the possibility of mercury poisoning. I listened wide eyed to that part. Like, what are you even telling us? Here we are at the conclusion of this story. And I got to say, it makes a lot of sense. I don't know a ton about mercury poisoning, but just based on what we learned from Brian as he's talking about this, I feel like a lot of pieces kind of fall into place. I agree. I think it does make pieces fall into place. I mean, by the end, it's clear that um, John B. was pretty severely mentally ill. Yes. Yes. Blaming it on the mercury kind of gives us a pat answer, if you will. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it matters so much if he was poisoned by mercury, which I think that was completely legitimate and like a really decent theory and, and likely or, you know, chicken or the egg, or that's just um, who he was. You know, it, he was a genius. They'd been yes. saying this since he was like a child, and then yes. we witnessed it ourselves. And so often genius and mental illness are intertwined. Yes, yes. Um, so if there was mercury poisoning on top of a tendency towards towards illness, then, I mean, yes, you're just get, looking at a calamity of which it was. Oh, man, that is quite, quite a conclusion. Um, When, you know, he definitely clearly was a genius. And like you said, a lot of times people who are genius level, they live very tortured lives. He was clearly brilliant. And that left me so puzzled about why he did not have an official will. I, you know, he purportedly told Tyler, this could be yours. He had texted people like, you can have this, you can have that. The man was a genius. He he knew that he had to have known that none of that, none of his words or texts or any of that would hold up in court. He clearly has a deep relationship at the time of his death with Tyler and, and clearly, you know, on some level wanted, he desperately wanted Tyler to be able to break out of the poverty cycle. So it makes me wonder then, like, okay, he didn't leave a will. It, did he actually have a fortune he was sitting on? Is there actually gold buried somewhere on that property? Was that all just, um, you know, sort of an urban myth of this rural town that maybe there never was a fortune, maybe just enough for him to live on and, you know, spend all this money on landscaping, whatever, but there was no actual fortune. I just, I'm so conflicted about that aspect of the story. Like why he didn't leave a will in, if there was, if there actually was nothing to bequeath to anyone. There was nothing. You think it's all gone? If there ever was anything? I don't think there was ever any gold. I don't think that he had a fortune. I would venture to guess that possibly even the timing of his suicide was timed around him knowing that he he didn't have much. Um, I don't think he had a will because I don't think he had much. (laughs) Like, I don't... I, I I don't think there's any there there. Mm. And I know that's that is not the romantic answer. And I think that <laughs> he was quite uh fantastical, you know, just in his 
in mm-hmm. his presentation of life. And I think he wanted people or maybe even believed on his in his own level that there was a fortune somewhere. Um, but we also know that he was smarter than that. And I think he would have known, I think he, you know, as he got to maybe the end of his rope and he probably did, you know, his clockmaker friends said that he probably made a killing in the nineties, which he probably did. Mm-hmm. His, his mom probably collects some sort of social security or something. So like, I'm sure that he has been able to get by. He obviously had very low living expenses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That some of his last big projects, a $60,000 maze and whatnot, was sort of the last, the last of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that the timing of his suicide was was timed to that. And he would have known, you know, why would he not have taken care of his mom or whatever? But I I do think that it's not a, it's not a far leap to know that you could sell the farm and you could whatever and she would probably be okay. But I really don't think, I don't think that there is gold bars buried on that land that he didn't leave in tr- true clear instructions to. The only exception would be my my earlier theory of that um, somebody got to it. Right. But that's sort of just my own conspiracy, like what is happening with that town clerk and she is not, mm-hmm. she is not telling all she knows. Right. So maybe there was some cash. Maybe he wasn't down to his last literal $97. However, buried gold bars no, are not a real thing. <laughs> You're ruining this for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. You tell me. Now, now you give the more positive answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think... I did want to believe that there was some buried treasure there. However, as to why he didn't leave a will, I I fully do believe in this mercury poisoning thing. And I do think that even, even still that he was mentally ill. And I think that, I I mean, I don't even know. uh, I don't know. I think that he just had deteriorated so badly. That's, that was sort of the story I told myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was cognizant as, enough to put together the suicide note that had people to contact and their it, contact information. And that's true. Um, you know, multiple, he compiled his multiple manifestos and, and wrote the last however many pages that were um, original and, and seemed new ish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how much of a stretch is it, even if he'd had on his computer a will that he hadn't? filed with a lawyer or whatnot, at least it would have been something. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That's true. That's true. Oh my gosh. There is so much here. We haven't even talked about the motifs of clocks and mazes and even tattoos to some extent, but let me ask you one last question. There are a lot of very difficult things discussed in in, in S-Town, a lot of um, matters to be dealt with that are really difficult, things like suicide and mental illness and um, repressed sexuality and lots of stuff. And yet, you know, they just kind of released it out into the world and let it be the art that it is. Um, I've seen a couple of places people suggest that maybe there should have been some kind of a trigger warning or a heads up that some of these things were going to be discussed. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? I think that people's trigger warnings do not get to trump art. Okay. I think that the art comes first. Um, I fully believe people are triggered by things. I really do. Of co- I mean, you know, um, and that is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, I don't think we should tailor our art 
um, to other people's triggers. Right, right. I totally agree. I'm so glad that I got to experience this with no preconceived anything about it. Absolutely none. I'm even glad that I thought it was going to be true crime. And then it took a turn into this beautiful, painful exploration of the human experience. Now, I have some friends who are personally sensitive to the topic of suicide. So yeah, I'm going to give them a little heads up that it might not be um, the best material for them. But for the general public, yeah. Yeah, and it, but and even if you are triggered or, or very sensitive to suicide, um, then you're not going to want to listen after episode two. Um, but it, you know, just at the end of episode two, which the big reveal that John has committed suicide, it's literally just stated as fact. Right. They don't get into the awfulness of how he chose to do it, right. um, the effects of people around him, the things that are hard to listen to if if yes. that is really close to your heart. Yeah. The mere stating at the end of episode two that he did so, yeah. I don't think requires a trigger warning. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I do. Um, before we wrap up, do you have any big closing universal thoughts on a takeaway or just concluding thoughts what's the what's the thesis here i think it's people are complicated mm. so true i i love the conclusion so much i i wondered how they were going to bring it all together and i i feel like artistically they did such a great job that little story that Brian tells at the end of um, of John's mother, and of actually of even going back a few generations, how how that family had come into wealth, and it wasn't by the best, you know, like the most ethical ways. And then he tells this little story of his mom, like when she was pregnant with him, just like praying and pleading mm. with God, um, please give me a genius, Lord, give me a genius, and so. It just gave me chills to think about that sometimes the things that we pray for so much actually, you know, that we wish for, that we hope for, they actually come to fruition. And sometimes that brings heartache and pain and, you know, just a tortured experience to fruition, which is, again, this is not like... (laughs) This is not light material we're dealing with, but I think that that's, if you think about the, just the experience of humanity on this earth, I mean, I think that lots of us can think of how that plays out in on a personal level. And I think besides um, his very unusual method of taking his own life, a lot of things in this story were not that unusual. And that is what is great about stories, right? The things that make them universal. Um, You know, mental illness, family fighting over fortune. Mm, Absolutely. um, Yes. You know, mentorship, repressed sexuality, even like some of the wider picture things here are kind of just regular life. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you find these very interesting characters to shine a light on that. I just thought it was beautiful. I feel like some of my analysis here in this episode, I've said kind of a lot of negative things just because when I'm like thinking through things, I'm it's more interesting to pull out the negative than the positive. But I actually loved this. Mm-hmm. I thought it was beautiful and brilliant. I like the way they released it. I like 
um, so much about it, with the exception of that big chunk of episode six. I think this is one of the best things I have ever listened to, ever, and definitely one of the best things put out mm. into the world of podcasts, which is now exploding because of this team, right? Like yeah. this team is putting out some of the very best things like yeah. in the world right now. Yeah. Like 10 million downloads in the four, first four days after release because yeah, this is incredible stuff. And I genuinely just feel like we're so lucky to get to experience art in this way. So we know that you have thoughts on S-Town. If you would like to come talk to us, I've never asked you all to do this before, but I think this might be a great place to have a discussion. Go over to the show notes on our website, sortaawesomeshow.com, and look for the for the show notes for this episode, because we can go in the comment section, we can have a completely spoiled conversation and not have to worry about keeping it spoiler free for anyone. Tell us your theories, ask us questions, tell us your thoughts on our thoughts. We would love to hear it. You can also always find us on social media if you want to talk to us there. Laura, remind us where we can find you for follow-up conversation. I am always at lauratremaine.com. I'm on Twitter as Laura Tremaine and on Instagram as lara.tremaine. Okay, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sorta Awesome Meg if you want to talk there. The show is Sorta Awesome Show and you can find us on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Pod. So thanks so much for listening. And even in light of all of the darkness and pain in this world, stay awesome, my friends. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.